0: Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts in Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. And I'm Adam Grossman. Adam, it's so good to see you. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. It's good to see you. Looking forward to the podcast. I'm happy to be back for another season and listeners will know that we've had a few episodes this season already and Adam has gotten off to a great start. And as we do sometimes, we like to have a conversation with each other to sort of fill in some gaps from these previous episodes and talk about what we have going forward. But Adam, how have things been with you overall? Yeah, it be good. Kind of working on a bunch of different things. So that's
1: nice. And then a lot of going on in the sports business world. You know, we're going to focus today and we'll get into more on the NBA and the All-Star Game, given that it's local to you and kind of some of the
0: issues are around the league. But yeah, just a lot going on. How about on your end? Same. It's a lot going on. I think you're right from a sports perspective. It's interesting to be in a place where the NBA All-Star Game was hosted funny enough. It was in Chicago last year. Was it was the last year, or the year before. Um, Cause it was, it was freaking cold and people still complain about how cold it was. Yes. And interestingly, <laughs> it wasn't that cold here, but it, it's, it, what's really interesting is the dichotomy between the two cities and how they're, they were hosted. But as you said, There's an enormous amount going on in sports, and and particularly the NBA currently. We've talked a little bit about some of the NBA stuff, but there's a lot going on with that right now. You mentioned the All-Star game. I think there's a lot of opinion around different facets of the All-Star game. The gameplay, the actual score, to see it go over 200 points was interesting. But you have any sort of initial thoughts on on the All-Star game overall? Yeah, I
1: guess it's over four hundred points in total at two hundred. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think it's it goes to kind of a couple of things that you talk about in my class. I think in your classes, in terms of competitiveness, ventizing of sports. The impact of media rights and what the nba and how the nba is using you know the all-star game can be seen as a frame for the nba both current media rights and on a go forward basis and what they're trying to do to maximize those media rights particularly in a constantly dynamic environment framed in part by the announcement of this combined streaming service that's coming from ESPN, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Fox. I think all of that, the, the NBA All-Star game creates a nice frame to examine kind of multiple different issues, streams, advances in technology. But I think first we should start with kind of like your on-ground experience and kind mm-hmm. of you, you being in and around the city and what's it like to be in and
0: around the city that's hosting a major event like the All-Star game? It was really interesting. And it's a good question. I, I've been fortunate in my life to... We lived in Chicago during the All-Star Game when it was at the United Center and then here. But I've also had the opportunity, I lived in London during the 2012 Olympics. And it's really fascinating to see how cities respond and react to these type of events. I would say that Indianapolis as a city is very good at hosting sporting events because you see Final Fours and college football players for Big Ten championships and those types of things here a lot. And I think that holds true with this event as well. They split things up: the celebrity game, the the skills challenge, the dunk contest, the three point contest. All those things were at Lucas Oil Stadium, and then the game itself was at Cambridge Field House, where the Pacers play. The Pacers actually, in Indianapolis in general, had the opportunity to have the All Star game. I think it was three or four years ago. It actually passed, and the reason for that was they really wanted to showcase Indiana from a basketball perspective. And they put about $500 million into renovating game bridge field house. It's a beautiful place to see a basketball game on the flip side of this. I will say if you juxtapose the super bowl and the event that was, was there versus the NBA all-star game, Las Vegas and Indianapolis are not the same type of city. And so while Indianapolis does an incredible job with the actual events themselves, I think the leisure activities and the entertainment around and outside that do leave a little bit to be desired And even from a spacing perspective, yes, there is not as many events that you could attend, but I think also that comes down to some, some things like space and so on.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things we talk about, and it's a good kind of platform to talk about one of the concepts that we cover in the class, which is a sportscape and what, how do you define uh, kind of the sporting, the idea behind a sportscape is that the sports do not just take place on a specific day or in a specific uh, venue that they, you can transform at times you know an area around the venue even an entire city like we're describing into an, an, an entire sporting experience so indiana we actually highlight indianapolis in the context of of uh, of this concept in the in the book the sports Strategist. but i think it's interesting to see it come to life and you're right to create a dichotomy that's often something that does happen both the nba and the nfl around this time have a lot of interesting events the nba with the trade deadline and the all-star game and everything that surrounds that the nfl with the playoffs And particularly the Super Bowl experience, which lasts not just the game itself, but even the multiple weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. So the idea of creating events and creating what we or I've called in the past kind of revenue multipliers and in and around the city is something that to be considered. And that's also a conversation, the impact that sports can have on cities is a conversation that's happening right now, both in terms of the context of new venue construction, expansion franchises, um, and in the context of particularly new venue, either renovation or construction that's happening throughout the country. Chicago being a, a good example of that with the Bears and the White Sox both potentially considering stadiums downtown. Clearly, the Las, Las Vegas is is. In the center of that not just for the super bowl but also in the context of the A's potentially or moving to las vegas and what is the actual economic impact of these events both regular season but special events like the super bowl and all-star game is also a factor consideration given the expense of putting on these events for the municipalities and the local venues
0: a question that always comes up to me and i wonder your thoughts on this is I think there's obviously a lot more excitement around the Super Bowl for different reasons. There's excitement around the NBA also, but I think the stakes have something to do with it. And I think that's hard for the NBA. And we can talk about this in different permutations of how they've tried to address the game and all the different events they have around it. But with the Super Bowl, it's the highest stakes possible. And where the All-Star game, you know, like you said, over 400 points scored, that doesn't really equate to the same level of stakes now. Do they have to be? No, not necessarily. They're different things, but I do think that does play a factor into the level of excitement, the level of engagement and those types of things across, you know, not only in person, but people watching, you know, at home.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right to, again, part of the issue with the dichotomy of making comparison between the two events is the level of stakes. You know, clearly the NBA was made, not clearly, but a context of the NBA All-Star game was that, the league, particularly and Commissioner Adam Silver and Deputy of in charge of uh, basketball operations Joe Dumars, had put a priority on making the All Star Game more competitive in order to increase interest around the game in the ways that you were describing. I uh, think again, it would be impossible for the All Star Game, given it's not a championship contest, to have the same level of you know competitive stakes. And clearly, like the NBA, the NFL, particularly in the United States, is much more popular than the NBA. One only has to look at the television ratings among many yeah. other show that's the case so you know it's it's hard to make a direct apples to apples comparison other than that they're special events they're from major you know arguably f- the two marquee events from the major professional sports leagues, one being the marquee event of the biggest league, one being a marquee event of, you know, depending on how you look at it, the second or third biggest league domestically. Okay. So it's hard to make apples to apples comparisons, but you know, the NBA and part of the reason we want to talk about the all-star game is the most important strategic and revenue issues, the wrong word or has the wrong connotation, but strategic consideration is the upcoming media rights deals. And, the NBA was trying to show has used the in-season tournament this year and the all-star game to say, here are some new content. Here are some ways that we could, Well, with the in-season tournament, new content, but with the All-Star game, being more competitive drive increased interest in the game and the events around the weekend, particularly from a media rights perspective. And the fact that the players, you know, that the All-Star game looked and felt similar to previous years, All-Star games, even with the league and particularly senior leadership, really making an effort and a focus to make it more competitive does create, you know, potential Again, considerations, issues, strategic uh, challenges about how do you incentivize and do you need to incentivize players to make it more competitive? How would you do that? And does it really make a difference? To your point, the ratings were up year over year in the All-Star game, even though even though right this the game arguably was maybe no more competitive, if not slightly less competitive. It's interesting. People have cited that as a reason not to necessarily make the game more competitive. At the same time, the ratings have been generally on decline, and last year's All Star Game ratings, I believe, were the lowest um, that they've ever been. So this year, going from the lowest to a little bit below above the lowest is probably is better than the opposite, but it's still probably not a good thing. But it's you know, again the All Star Game. You know, it's a convergence for the NBA of a lot of different topics and I'll stop there, but there's also an interesting technology angle to explore as well in in terms of the context of the all-star game.
0: There definitely is. And I think you're right about the media rights in the sense that the NBA does an an excellent job of getting that product out there for consumers to consume in whatever way is easy for them. They've done an amazing job with YouTube or things through social channels with Instagram and house highlights on Instagram or the NBA official channels on TikTok, which I do think has a, a good effect on the overall media rights deal because yes, fans are watching these in different places. They're not monetizing it quote unquote, you know, and that's one of the big complaints that often happens is when the NFL puts things behind paywalls, right. And, or doesn't put as much stuff on YouTube But the NBA takes a different approach and has a lot of content out there for fans to see. But I think it does grow that fan base in that way. The interesting part though, you mentioned the in season tournament and there was a lot of grumblings about the in season tournament to start myself included but i think at the end of it you could tell it meant something it felt like it meant something and i think that you know with the courts being different and so on like it it did feel like an event and i think that good on the nba for trying those things right to keep the engagement from fans and especially younger fans i think that you know it is a microwave society in many ways and I worry less about that for the NBA because of the the duration of the game and the level of engagement. But I think that they are looking for the future and those future fans and how they want to engage them.
1: Yeah, I and mean, I think one of the things I – part of the reason I started in my company – Now I, I agree with you in terms of it definitely felt like there were higher stakes and – just in terms of the kind of the chatter, one of the things you do want to be careful about is saying where things may have higher stakes or be competitive or resonate with audiences. And then, you know, the metrics would say otherwise. There's clearly like a dedicated community of MBA, you know, uh, commentary, whether it's on television, on podcasts, on radio discussions, that are radio, terrestrial and satellite radio that focuses on the MBA. But clearly there's a divergence in, in, in scale and popularity particularly domestically between the you know NFL and NBA and you know the in season tournament did achieve so you, uh, part of what I like to say is like, do you actually see some kind of metrics or data that does show that? And it does, right? It does show those, the ratings were up, the social commentary in general, I believe was up both from um, an engagement perspective and an overall impressions perspective. And I think it, you know, again, obviously the idea behind that was with the in-season tournament or one is part of this overall media rights discussion, right? Creating more content, more events, makes the media rights more valuable. And the NBA was able to prove that in the face of skepticism about why this you know, potentially wouldn't be successful. How the NBA obviously the in season tournament was in large part derived from the, you know, global and European, well, global soccer, but European soccer specifically and kind of the interseason competitions that exist from a soccer perspective. Those have long standing traditions. Many have existed at least for decades, if not over 100 years now. You know, could the NBA replicate that success for games? in a way that had never existed before. It does seem like that's the case. You mentioned, you want to talk about the courts, which is a you know, up before we recorded the podcast. I think that's a good thing to look at both the courts specifically for the all-star game. And obviously clearly there was the NBA made a decision to make the courts look different so that it was clear that the games had a, a different level of importance, which I think, you know, some people had a, a lot of issues with the courts, other people thought the courts looked really, you know, it was really interesting, certainly created a conversation around the courts. So I think those things, you know, you can look at those metrics and see an increase in importance, but that's kind of the reason I bring it up is kind of in the context, of the all-star game, you know, it's the, or one reason to bring it up is, you know, people are like, well, the all-star game, they put all this effort and it wasn't any more competitive and everything, you know, we need to get rid of it, but the ratings are up. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. if ratings are up and you're still seeing conversation, is that really true? And like, are people, yes, there are maybe more hardcore fans who are less interested, but are these games, or if the goal is to increase the audience and reach new demographics, and if they're, you're seeing some, again, this is a small sample size, but at least a small upward trend based off the data. You just, you know, you obviously want to be careful that the loudest voice isn't, and I'm not saying you're doing that, but an interesting thing is like, I, I would have before seeing the television ratings or even you know even looking at some basic social conversation metrics i would have thought that wow there would have been a a real down, you know, like the metrics would have been down year over year. And that doesn't seem to be the case. So, you know, things might not be as broken, so to speak, as some of the commentators and pundits have talked about when it comes to this thing. And that's where numbers and data can be helpful. Certainly not the only thing you want to use when you're talking about like, are people really engaged, but it does provide at least a helpful context and
0: and can help you guide your decision-making process or thought around an event like this. Yeah. And you're right. I think that Until I saw those ratings, too, and we talked about it, I I had the same feel for especially the game itself. And I think what's interesting about the game itself is, you know, there's a lot of stars that are really marketable and that people relate to very well. But I think that the like you said, the competitive balance and those things, it just sometimes doesn't feel like basketball in the same context. But at the end of the day, does it have to be? Right. The point of this is exactly like you mentioned, to eventize these things, to celebrate the league, to show those skills and, and so on. And so and reach different demographics, you know, the NBA, a little bit different than the NFL. They don't necessarily have maybe the world's most popular person sitting in the stands watching to reach those other demographics. And, and that was a, a very easy way for the NFL they got lucky in that sense to pull in that that group of fans which if you look at the ratings from an NFL perspective they were higher than Super Bowl was the most watched television event I think from a US history perspective but the NBA on its own merit does a good job of creating that engagement right you mentioned the floor i think and not to get on my old man's soapbox here but i love the three point contest and the dunk contest loved them i think those are a thing that all star weekend is about right it is eventizing but also showing hey it, this is a fun league and there's really interesting things. And there's players that have incredible skill in lots of different areas, but we can't get anybody to do it anymore. Right. The dunk contest, you can't get stars to do it because of their brand and, and those types of things. There was the interesting thing with Steph Curry and, and Sabrina and you know, and, and, which I thought was really interesting and a valuable thing to add because the women's game is at a really interesting point right now. I think that there's a lot of interest and attention. I think the NBA would do you know, the NBA obviously t- tight partnership with the WNBA in that sense. But it, it's really great to cross promote those things and bring them together in some ways because the women's game can, can, continues to grow and there's really remarkable stars there too. So it, it's cool to see those things come together. You, you mentioned the floor. I think the floor was one of the most interesting things of the weekend. And we've seen implementations of this before in some random ways, but not on this, you know, scale of this level, right? And it, it was a, a LED for, for those listeners that, that didn't see it or, or you know, hadn't heard about it. It was a full LED floor that was developed by a company called ASB Glass. Um, and what was so cool about it is the ability to dynamically interact with what was going on on the court, right? From a skills challenge perspective to show players where to go or to, you know, show that certain parts were supposed to be excited. all those things. I think it's a really interesting implementation of that technology. The flip side of that is it's bright. It's real bright. And even from a TV perspective, you can see that. I wonder how that impacts the players and if they have any issue with that. But, you know, outside of a regular game for these exhibitions and things like the skills challenge, the celebrity games and whatever, cool way to to show innovative technology and integrate that into the actual play.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple things there. I think I'll start with the, the court part first and then come back to the what you were talking about in terms of potentially expanding demographics. When you're talking about the court, Damian Lillard did say at one point that in terms of, I guess, the downside is like he couldn't necessarily say, see the three-point line. That's not why he shot from half court, I guess, at the end of the game. But like, <laughs> you know, he couldn't necessarily see it because it was so bright, it was hard to see. That being said, I think this goes back again to part of the reason that the NBA is looking at dynamic court floors is that that does potentially increase... Going back to, you always kind of want to think about um, when you're trying something. There's certainly brand considerations, but a revenue consideration. And what's the primary driver of increasing the the revenue streams and valuations of NBA franchise in the league as a whole? It's the value of the media rights contract. How uh, can you potentially increase the value of media rights contracts if you create inventory? that's more easily sellable, particularly for television companies to potentially increase the amount of on-court advertising and and brand and partnership. And a dynamic court allows for easier and more uh, dynamic or in, in a signage, which you can see more kind of on the side of the courts, typically, as opposed to on the court specifically. Typically, you'll see, you know, scoreboard tables at NBA games or behind home plate signage at uh, baseball games, where there's a lot of more rotational signage, which becomes more inventory to sell, which potentially leads to a higher revenue generation. You know, sometimes the the teams themselves have the opportunity to sell, you know, will sell that signage, particularly the, the court signage. But you know, in the context of local media rights deals and and or uh, national media rights deals, um, the ability to increase the amount of signage, particularly on the court, would be extremely valuable because that's on the court signage could potentially be much more likely to be on screen because it's literally on the court, right? And the court is always on the screen. And right now there's static signage and typically a naming rights partner or a jersey patch partner will be on the floor or a major partner. But if you're able to have a major partner and rotate other content in both for local media rights deals that the teams control and the national media rights deals that the league controls that then distributes that revenue across the teams, that becomes a lot more valuable. So using kind of what you were saying, exactly what you're saying, exhibition events to test that out, to see if that's something that people could see or interact with and making the floor almost potentially, again, you have to do this in context to make sure people don't be like to that fans and different audience members, you know, you don't want to bombard them with too many ads, but that does open up a very potential lucrative stream, both from a media rights side and a sponsorship branding side. So that's definitely interesting. And I wouldn't be, you know, it's interesting that that's one thing that the NBA can do that maybe, you know, particularly not the NFL, but, or wouldn't do, or couldn't do, but the NFL, NHL, MLS, it's difficult, much more difficult to do with grass fields or ice to do with a floor that could be dynamic.
0: So that's- But if we linger on that for a second, there's a question here in that of, You mentioned European soccer, right? In the NBA, you know, in-season tournament having things like Champions League or, you know, different types of in-season tournaments that happen, whether it's English football, whether it's, you know, rest of European football. You can see these dynamic floors. One thing I love about European football is the pace of play, the less stopping, the, the going away to commercial breaks and so on. Could you see this? So you had an article a couple of weeks ago about, you know, jersey patches. Could you see with the increased revenue from something like a Jersey patch plus the potential of increased revenue because of dynamic floors and so on, the ability to truncate the the game and remove some of those commercial breaks, which, you know, we oftentimes hear that some of the complaints are, well, games are too long, less than the NBA than others. But could you see that as a viable opportunity to replace revenue? Probably not.
1: I mean, I guess it's like an, definitely an interesting idea. I think, you know. There's only two ways that really not two ways. There's two primary ways that rights holders, the the you know, like the Warner Brothers, you know, and and such monetize content. It's through subscription revenue and advertising. And advertising has become an increasingly lucrative stream, not just for Max, but also which is Warner Brother Discovery's streaming service. But obviously, this new combined streaming service, Netflix, Amazon—they've all leaned more more into ads. If anything, than less into ads. So, that's mm-hmm. become you know for Amazon outside of sports a multi multi billion the you know ten figures a year type, well more than that, maybe eleven figure a year business just for Amazon. So, I think it's a, it's definitely a good idea. I think it's definitely something that the overall or certain audiences, particularly fans, would want you and i both have uh, young families i think anything that would shorten a a sporting event could potentially be interesting to us but personally but again i think the idea is like if one of your main monetization you know if you're asking for an increase in media rights fees uh, from rights holders you do have to look at how they make money and you know you're seeing a harder time seeing the increase in overall subscription revenue not that that's not possible but obviously with the shrinking paid tv universe particularly uh, on cable and satellite and moving towards streaming which hasn't been as lucrative although that's one of the reasons that you know creating a new sports bundle is one of the reasons that warner brothers espn and fox are coming together to potentially increase the overall revenue that can be made from subscription and advertising i don't think advertising is necessarily something that would be winnowed. I think it's just more increasing the opportunities to increase the overall revenue. You mentioned in the article I wrote about Jersey patch, Jersey patches, you know, primarily our local team revenue. You know, they're obviously the teams that sell the Jersey patch, each team, particularly in the major sports um, leagues, except for the NFL can sell their own patch. But what I was focused on is a QR code makes those patches potentially more valuable because they become more active advertisement. So I do think you're right to to bring up and probably something I should have brought up since I wrote the original. But the idea that, you know, if you could add in QR codes to the floor where people could then scan the phones and, and have a more active advertising experience like they would in a television commercial if they could do that, if, you know, if, um, rights holders could sell that as additional inventory in a way that the Pacers did with, with their QR code on their Jersey patch, which makes the, which arguably made their patch potentially more valuable because it makes it, a, you know, moves from just here's a, not that that's not valuable, but here's a logo on a Jersey to, well, I can look at this code. I can scan this code and learn more about the company or a team or get, become a more engaged band. That typically moves somebody, or potentially moves somebody, down the customer funnel to make them more an active, engaged consumer. So it's definitely a good thought. I just, I think it's if you're looking to increase revenue, decreasing the inventory available is probably not the way it's going to go. But it's,
0: I think it's just more that it opens up a lot more inventory
1: to sell.
0: And I think you make an interesting point, one that a lot of people are trying to harness. And what I mean by that is. You know, especially certain generations of fans are want to be engaged with that content in some way. All, you know, Most of us have our phone in our hand in some way, whether at an event or at home. And like you said, if you could put something that would allow a fan to be interactive with the advertisements or the content in general on the court or somewhere that they can scan it, I think it's a really interesting idea to create that engagement, whether it's through an advertising you know, medium or not. But you mentioned the streaming service. The sports and a lot to unpack here. And I think the level of excitement I have in this is interesting, but it should be muted in some ways. But we talked about the rights, you know, media rights coming up. How well, first, let's talk about what this is and sort of define what it is. But how do you think that overall impacts the landscape of sports consumption for all of us?
1: I think it's interesting, as you said, to define what this is. I'm not sure that the companies have fully defined what this. I don't is think so either. <laughs> at the time of this recording, or at least not that I've seen. Not that the, you know, I think there's still a lot to be sorted out. Exactly. I don't even think the right now. It's <laughs> one way to describe this is Spoolu, which is like Sports Hulu, but like I don't even mm-hmm. think there's actually a title for it. There's been some commentary on what the price point would be. I think it's people have speculated it'll be something between forty and fifty dollars a month which is interesting because you know you can get uh, either Hulu on its own that would include sports or non-sports or Hulu Plus or YouTube TV for arguably not that much more than what that combined service which which as of now would not include Paramount Plus would not include would not include Peacock and it's not entirely clear if it would include at least there's at least from what I've seen mixed reporting on which NFL games would be included or not included. So, you know, cause like, you know, most of the NFL games, it's, even if you just look at the CBS part of it or I shouldn't say most, there's a substantial number on CBS and Peacock or, or Paramount and or CBS, NBC and potentially their streaming services. So, you know, it's not exactly clear how that would all work out. So I think part of it is it's still unclear, but I think it goes to a larger issue you know, the the single greatest driver arguably for the sports industry was the cable bundle and the idea that non sports fans, at least in part or not, you know, arguably more than in part subsidized sports media rights going up and subsidized the sports industry because there were a lot of people, you know, who would never or very infrequently watch sports who are still paying for either the ESPNs. Or um, regional sports networks, or the Warner Brothers or TNTs of the world. And as you know, the service has moved away, or as um, I should say, consumers have moved more towards either OTT or over the top or direct to consumer offerings and have moved away from that, there's trying to figure out exactly how that bundle or rebundle would work. Has been something. Uh, it's been a very difficult challenge for those companies, particularly, you know, most of those companies, like I've talked about, whether it's through ESPN Plus or Max or through Paramount Plus or through um, even Fox through Tubi. It, you know, most at, at first have tried to do it on a standalone basis in a, in a in a way to compete, not solely, but in part, compete with Netflix and Amazon who are much and apples who are much bigger companies than those companies on a revenue and what's called market cap, which is one way to look at the value overall value of those companies. So now they're trying to figure out if they can create some form of the unit economics that existed with the cable bundle and the streaming, you know, in some form of streaming, which is part of the reason the sports universe is coming together uh, And the, and the last part is that as of now, though, that's changed a little bit recently, you know, other than Netflix, and I think Matt or Warner Brothers Discovery in the last quarter, or, or I can't remember if it was last quarter or last physical year, you know, streaming services have been nine figure, if not higher loss mm-hmm. on a quarterly basis for these companies, which the cable and, you know, before the streaming universe came online, that was, those were often the biggest source or one big source of re- profitable revenue growth. ESPN being a big example for Disney, where ESPN at times contributed you know a substantial portion of its own to the entire disney profitability for the for the whole company and i think it was something like 20 mm-hmm. you know, percent all the time my head, it's at least 20 percent of the profitability of the whole company just came from espn which um, is not the same today right that dichotomy has no. flipped in many ways yes it's still profitable like espn is still profitable it's certainly not at the that level of profitability for the company so yeah i think that's it's again i think this universe is still being defined and it's an interesting universe to explore and other people, including Ben Thompson, I have explored articles, columns, podcasts, among others. I should say just call out Ben Thompson, but there's there's a lot of content because I think it's still a lot of it's still unknown how it will all shake out.
0: Yeah, Ben Thompson's uh He's He has a great, you know, he does a great job of breaking some of these things down. You know, Derek Thompson from The Atlantic, who does stuff for the Ring of the Ringer Podcast Network and and Bill Simmons, they had a good conversation about this as well. And I think that for me, I, I think the one part is consumers have been Wanting, craving something like this for a long time, right? Streaming service for sports. The interesting thing, as you mentioned, with the news that we have currently is it's almost to be careful what you wish for. The reason I say that is, like you said, we don't know the cost. We don't know what's going to be included. You know, our consumers are going to really want to pay another forty to fifty dollars a month if they're not going to get everything they need from "quote unquote" need from that space, right? Where we've gotten to this spot where the promise of streaming has turned into the headache and it's the fragmentation of those things. And like you mentioned, the union economics work a lot better from a bundling perspective for those cable companies back in the day. And we're starting to see some of that now. The harder part for these companies, and it's, they do make strange bedfellows in some ways because oftentimes we see them as competitors, right? ESPN and however, their biggest competitors these days are not necessarily each other, right? It's attention. It's sort of those entertainment units, quote unquote, that are being taken by TikTok or Instagram or Fortnite or Roblox or whatever it is that other people are doing for those entertainment units. Right. And so getting in front of those people and giving the easiest way to do it is really important. And this seems like a step in the right direction. However, when you look at it holistically it may just end up being another spot that could okay the consumers have to get this and so it there is a lot to shake out still for sure
1: and i think there's well there's a few, as usual i've said a few interesting things one i would say is like you said like that people have been looking for a streaming service for sports one question is is that totally true like right obviously yeah. there are a lot of people still have their cable package or pay tv package is for sports and still you know obviously the nfl prioritizes broadcast and roger goodell specifically said he wouldn't move you know the majority or or large portions of nfl games to streaming any, while he was commissioner specifically because the nfl prioritizes reach and broadcast networks because by definition they're broadcast and you can get them over the air And they make, you know, money in part by the retransmission fees that they charge to pay TV providers, in addition to being available over the air. You know, it's like, that's one of the questions is like, do people actually want to consume sports- on tradition, more traditional technology, or do they want to conser, you know, consume it on streaming technology? And it's also a dichotomy of who is the sports fan, how old are they, what are their content consumption habits? So that's definitely interesting. One of the other things that you brought up, which is is, is absolutely true, is like there's definitely more competition for consumer attention. But what's interesting is I wrote, a, I mentioned in the book that I co-authored, "The Sports Strategist: Developing Leaders for a High Performance Industry." the co-authors excluding me published a book in 2005, 2006 called the elusive fan which was targeting fans in an increasingly competitive marketplace before there was you know anything like twitter streaming tiktok you know like it's always been the case that technology and this was the case well here comes radio here comes television here comes you know for a while as you know then it was social virtual augmented metaverse so this is always something that people have tried to deal with but that doesn't mean it hasn't increased, but it's just people always are in the moment thinking about increasing technology. And that's one good reason to take your class when I think hopefully one good reason to take the class that I'm, you know, I co-teach now, which is like you need to have a frame for look to look at that specific issue in terms of the increasing fragmentation of audiences and technology and really asking questions like is that what people want? Like, do people want a new streaming service? Do they want to go to one sports? Can 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 you pull it off? Do people, you know, want to consume? You know, you mentioned the Derek Thompson podcast with uh, Bill Simmons. He brought up an interesting idea. there's a lot of sports fans who really, you know, which could be cons- challenging for the NBA major sports leagues, who really are more interested in the commentary around the sport rather than consuming the sport except for major events and what does that mean how do you monetize fans if they're not necessarily always as interested in watching the game but more listening about commentary around the game so it's just it's just interesting there's a lot of diversion paths and I think it's you know clearly like the leaders of those companies are making a bet that people do want a combined streaming and what streaming service that replicates the bundle that was on cable television but what's interesting is that I think the youngest of those group of executives is uh, Lachlan Murdoch. Yeah,
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think in his fifties. And it's like, you know, and they're talking about, we need to have this to reach in part reach younger audiences. And just because you're older doesn't mean you don't understand younger content consumption, but you know, it does. You just have to keep that in mind. It's like, they're not necessarily the user that they're trying to create this for. Again, you can definitely understand the user. You're creating something. You're not directly that person. But it's just an interesting like, you know, you just have to ask the questions about like, is this really what people want? How much are they willing to pay for it? Is this some, a way to consume content? Is this reaching the demographics? One thing I forgot to, you know, kind of close the loop on an earlier comment about the Taylor Swift phenomenon is you're absolutely right. Like the and the Super Bowl at the highest ratings, uh, as you said, of any sporting event or any event on television potentially ever. But like Taylor, it, what's interesting is that. You know, I think last year's Super Bowl had 115 million people watching it. This year's at 123. So while Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. is the biggest, it just really, I honestly think it just really shows the strength of the NFL, Mm -hmm. right? That you could have the most famous person in the world who's clearly driving at least media attention around it. And there's only an 8 million person increase, which any sport in the world would give a lot to have an 8 million increase on an event. But relative to the NFL and the Super Bowl, it's actually a relatively small increase and one of the things you brought up about the WNBA and NBA, what's interesting is the NBA, I think, does actually attract a lot of female fans. Maybe mm-hmm. there is a overlap in Taylor Swift's audience, but the WNBA, the primary audience of the WNBA, at least according to the internal numbers from a few years ago and, and numbers um, uh, I looked at uh, previously was males. Right. Males were the mm-hmm. biggest fans of the WNBA. So actually there could be an overlap between the WNBA and NBA audience in ways that people don't expect. So I think it's just, you kind of, that's part of the reason, again, to look at the numbers and kind of think of this more holistically. And you brought up some, you know, again, bringing up really good points and really good things to consider. And I think that's, you know, exactly what sports decision makers and industry leaders are thinking about and considering right now. And I don't think there are easy answers or simple answers to pursue. And the NBA all-star game just shows that, right? Mm-hmm. As, as we talked about, or I've talked about now a couple of times, like the NBA made a, and the senior leadership made a big point to make it more competitive. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it was more competitive yet, you know, engagement. So it's, it's just an interest, you know, I don't think there are clear answers even for the people who are, thought leaders, industry leaders, and and people who are running these sports.
0: Yeah, for for sure. And I think one thing is for certain is that is a topic that's going to keep evolving. And I think that's a great spot, you know, from our perspective, as we get into this, this season from, a, on the podcast, I think that the media rights and the engagement, how you create that engagement, the frame that you have, you mentioned it's a great thing to talk about for anybody that wants to get into any facet of sports, whether it's this and talking about it, you know, that hit me hard in the, in that podcast with Derek Thompson about, I do that. I do that the same, you know, I like the commentary around sports and oftentimes don't watch the games but I think anybody that wants to get into this or an executive or, you know, even at the college level and the understanding, you've got to have that frame of, you know, the knowledge around how and why people are engaging. Sometimes we, we change things just to change them. And that might not be right. And I think having the frame and understanding it is, is really important. And there'll be plenty more of this type of content this year. And I think we'll really dig into to things like this around the fan engagement. But, you know, Adam, is there what else are you looking forward to, you know, from from this season?
1: Yeah, I think we've uh, some of the episodes that we previously touched on, or you mentioned, have brought up some interesting ideas. Uh, I'm actually speaking when after this episode comes out on a panel on sports betting and sports betting operators, and what does the evolution of sports betting look like? Hopefully, we'll get into that with some of our guests. I thought he had the conversation with Eric Winston last week, who was mm-hmm. president of the NFLPA, now the president of the Winners Alliance, but the idea of what do group licensing rights look like, particularly for sports that haven't traditionally had, you know, that's coming that could be coming even more swiftly with some of the rulings recently from the National Labor Relations Board and college athletes, but you know, sports that have traditionally had either athletes that were not unionized or not typically had collective bargaining in some form or group licensing rights. That's an evolution, a substantial evolution in the change of sports. Hopefully we can, you know, we'll talk to some more folks on that front. I know you have a bunch of guests that you're excited about across a variety of sports that are talking about a lot of the issues that we've talked about now. So I'd be interested to hear more about what you think from the guests you have coming up.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. You know, we have some interesting guests coming up that will parlay some of these things that we talked about here around, you know, things like the media rights, the different ways of engaging. There's some around two, you know, that we have coming up from NFL teams from that. To talk about you know again some of the phenomena that's going on from the attention in the nfl and, and those types of things i do think we will and i know that a lot of, of students or, or listeners of the podcast previously have gone back and asked hey our thoughts around nil and and the collectives and how those are, and we'll certainly hit on those because they do impact the sports landscape overall and are continually changing so there's an enormous amount of, of stuff that we'll talk about this year and i'm excited to to get into those for sure so you know i appreciate It's really good to see you, Adam. And I'm excited for, you know, the season that we have upcoming. Yeah, always good to see
1: you. Yeah, I'm excited as well. And there's a lot to get into. And one thing I wanted to mention just before we jumped off is, you know, there's a lot on the technology side. We hit a bunch of that today, but I think there's some content that I'll be creating, but also content hopefully getting to guests, particularly technology, generative AI, the evolution of generative AI, how that can impact sports. That was a big topic of conversation at the NBA All-Star Game. Mm -hmm. We can talk about in future podcasts, but, you know, that topic is certainly only increasing in interest in inside and outside of the sports industry. And that's a topic we'll try to cover on the podcast as well. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you for the time, Adam. It It's good to see you. And for all the, all the listeners, we appreciate the time and, and coming back with us this season. And we look forward to bringing you all more content throughout the year. So thank you. And, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Bryce.